0: And welcome, everybody, to this episode of GraphQL Radio. This is a very special episode because my co host, Abby, works at Gatsby, and Gatsby does a lot of interesting things in the GraphQL ecosystem. So we were talking, and I realized actually, I have a bunch of questions for him that I think y'all are going to enjoy listening to. And so today, we're actually doing an episode where I interview Abby, my co host, about. Rag Gatsby and GraphQL. My name is Max Teuber. I am one of the co-founders of GraphCDN. I'm really excited to chat with you today, Abby. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing good, man. Uh, it feels good to be interviewed on our own show. So uh, <laughs> we will definitely do a GraphCDN episode, I'm sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we, we should. We're also working on a bunch of interesting stuff. But before we get into that, I would love to get to know you a little bit, Abi. Where does Abi come from? What is your story What have you done and and how did you end up at Gatsby where you are now?
1: Thanks. I guess that's an interesting story. So I'm from Los Angeles, California, born and raised here in California. Um, I actually went to college at UC San Diego and I did not study computer science. I studied mathematics and economics, so I was not destined to be an engineer the get-go. After college, uh, I had two options. I either had to go home and live with my parents or continue my young bachelor life in San Diego. So I hustled the last week of school to find any job that I could just use to cover rent and uh, just stay. stay in San Diego. I found a job at a startup in the finance department. So that's where I kind of, mm. there's this company called uh, Mogul. It was like a restaurant rewards program. You could like link up your visa debit card and you go to these restaurants. And anytime you swipe, you got like cash back for eating there. And so I didn't know any of the technical bits at the time. I was like, what the heck is this stuff? But uh, <laughs> I was just doing their finances, like raises, you know, got exposed to the startup culture from the finance perspective and one of my best friends i met there and i had asked him like hey like this uh, engineering thing sounds cool the products look really cool like how do i get involved with something like this like do i need a cs degree and he was like no i studied art in college <laughs> you know i just you know became an ios developer because i was i was interested in technology i self-taught myself years ago and i was like dang dude you studied art and you got this far like he was like a principal engineer He was like an older gentleman and so I was really inspired, you know. I really wanted to become a software engineer, so I like started studying like JavaScript, HTML, CSS. And back then, this was like 2013.
0: At this point, you had you had never done any coding. You you'd done your economics degree, your your math degree. You had never done any coding, but you were like, "This sounds cool. I want to do that."
1: Pretty much, like the only coding I'd ever done is like MATLAB, which is like a yeah. statistics program. And even then, I was just copying and pasting from Stack Overflow but I didn't even know it was Stack Overflow. I just thought it was like that website that had all the answers, you know? (laughs) So like, I was just so ignorant to everything, you know? I didn't even know about VCs or like how startups got their money. I just wanted to like be part of building some cool product that users wanted to use. And so (laughs) I didn't have any experience. I started, just bought a bunch of books and there were a lot of cool resources like Code Academy and just things like that. I always tell people like it's who you know. A lot of the times, so, like I got a lot of uh, opportunities because of that. Because my friend was a CTO in downtown San Diego, and he said, "Hey, I'll hire you tomorrow. You just have to quit your job today and come work for nine dollars an hour." Uh, <laughs> and I was like, "Isn't that like lower than minimum wage?" And he's like, "Yeah, but you don't. You have no leverage on in this situation. You come, you learn how to to work in this environment. We'll pay you nine bucks an hour because that's enough. Use that's that's exactly." the amount you need to cover your rent and buy groceries and you come tomorrow and there it goes. And I was like, Oh shit, what am I going to do? Like, and I actually did quit my job that literally that day I quit my job. And the next day I started as a software engineer and my friend had lied to this boss. He lied to the CEO and said, yeah, my friend has tons of experience. I'm just going to hire him (laughs) on the spot. I had zero experience. But every day in that company, I felt like I was going to get fired every day. That's
0: incredible.
1: You know, I'd go home every night at like 6 p.m. And I'd study 6 p.m. to 3 a.m., get a little bit of sleep because I had the biggest imposter syndrome that people were going to find out I was a fraud, that I didn't know anything, you know. And so you start like watching YouTube and looking on Twitter and, you know, you can like meet people and stuff. And so I started getting better. You know, I like went on LinkedIn. I went on LinkedIn. I asked like random people who had like more than four years of experience I like cold message them back in the day when you could on LinkedIn, you can just send people messages and say, Hey, you want to be my mentor? Like I'm a budding engineer. We love code reviews, etc." And I got a bunch of crickets for many weeks, except this one guy hit me back up. He's like, he worked at like blue shield in like Atlanta, Georgia, some random guy I never met in my life. And he was like, yeah, I'd, I'd love to talk to you. So we started doing these like Google Hangouts on Thursdays and he was just teaching me code reviewing, you know, things I wasn't getting at my job because like, you know, I couldn't like ask dumb questions like that. Right. And so he, you know, was getting better, better. He started telling me my code looks better than his own co-workers. I felt good, you know, <laughs> and uh, fast forward a little bit like my friend, the friend from Mogul, he went to L.A. to join a startup called WorkPop. It was like an HR platform. And once again, it's who, you know, I hit him up like, hey, like. I'm ready to get out of San Diego and do something else. And he was like, yeah, come for an interview. It was like the hardest interview ever. They like do like the old school, like, you know, whiteboard type interviews. I probably failed it, but my, I guess my personality was good. And I worked at WorkPop for about five years. We got acquired. Yeah, I I became a senior engineer there. became a principal there. I learned everything, front end, back end, infrastructure. I like people from like LinkedIn and we hired people from eBay and people who worked on like MongoDB when it first was created. Just like all these different people in your life, right? They just teach you things, right? And so I stepped out. Once we got acquired, I got, we got bought by a big-ass company, and it was really boring. They didn't even give me a computer for two weeks. When I was working there, I didn't have a computer, so I knew that this was not for me. And then Gatsby was on Twitter. I was like just tweeting about some stuff, and uh, I got, a, got contacted, and the rest is history. Then I joined Gatsby like three years ago. So I've been at Gatsby for a while, too. So I guess that's like a nine-year career span right there. Boom. But it's crazy how it started. and. Sorry, that's such a long story, but that's my story. No, that's
0: fascinating, man. What a way to get kicked in the butt that you join a company without even knowing how to code and your friend completely oversold you. Like, that must be so much pressure on your shoulders for such a long time. Like, I can't imagine the fire that must have lit on your butt because you were like, holy cow, I do not know what I do. Like, that sounds scary as hell to me. Well, at first it was a fire.
1: I used to call my mom every day, like, I'm totally going to get fired today. And then the fire became like a chip on my shoulder because you start getting good at something Mm. and you realize that you're better than other people at it sometimes. And then you're like, well, I don't have a degree in this CS stuff, so I don't get the nice bonus packages or entry salary as high as others you know and that brings you it gives you a chip and then you like start being an asshole sometimes and then hopefully once you hit this level of maturity when you're okay with your career and how you got here the chip goes away and people just respect you for your experience not about your degrees or where you came from no one cares that i went to college at uc san diego anymore they just know that i'm good at what i do right and i care about it so if anyone listening has gone through that experience and has a chip right now it'll go away Trust. It'll go away eventually.
0: I absolutely agree. For for context, I, I worked with Abby at, at Gatsby for a little bit while I was there. I had no idea about any of this. I am learning all of this today, right? <laughs> I, I just knew Abby as a as a really technically talented co-worker. And I mean I'm excited to do the podcast with him now, but I, I did not know any of this, right? And I it's the same for me, right? I, I didn't study. And, and and people sometimes are surprised when I tell them that. But really nowadays it doesn't matter. If you're good at what you do, Where you learned it, how does that matter, right? As long as you're good at engineering, which is difficult to learn, admittedly, right? And it takes time and you definitely have to put in the effort like Abby did. But if you're good at engineering, why does it matter which college you went to or or, or if you even went to college at all or what you studied, right? That doesn't matter. Like you're you're good at your job. That's all that that really matters.
1: Yeah. And it doesn't matter how old you are too. I mean, in your case, like writing the libraries that you did at such a young age, it just shows that you're interested in something and you have the time to devote to it, you know? Yeah. It wasn't that it was like intrinsically hard or you're so smart. And I'm not saying you're not smart, right? It's just the, the grit and effort there that you put in. And that's why you're such a prolific contributor in open source and your libraries, et cetera, is because regardless if you were working at a company or not, you still care about the ecosystem, still care about the topics that we work on. You know, you don't have to get paid to care about those things. And I think that separates people who went to, school for this and maybe you know they did it because they followed a trend or they kind of fell into it and they actually love it and you know there's a difference between the i think the caliber of those engineers out there
0: what i love about your story is that you kind of decided that you were going to love this and try to make it happen without having really ever done it right like you had this economics degree you were working at the startup yeah. as sort of like the, the finance guy. And then you're like, this engineering thing, sounds oh, cool. How can I make that happen? And you quit your job to go join a different company with basically no experience whatsoever. And you were like, I'm going to be an engineer. But you love it, right? Apparently, since you're still doing it like nine years later, you must love it, right? You know, at the time it was like, oh, what's a respectable job? And
1: startups were just blowing up. You know, Angular JS was like the coolest thing ever. And people were talking about it on like Stack Overflow. And I was like, dang, what is Angular JS? I don't even know what Angular is. Like, <laughs> what's JS? You know, what is that? <laughs> and I, I was like 21. And what else did I have to do other than go to the bars, right? I just, you know, code instead, save some money and make more money in the long run, for sure.
0: So what do you think was the biggest difference from Abby when he got that first job for $9 an hour, trying to figure everything out to now being a staff engineer at Gatsby and having all of this experience under his belt? what do you think were sort of the the steps you took along the way or, or or the big step function increments, improvements that you got over time? I know that initially it was that mentor that you had. What's his name, by the way? You should totally give him a shout out. That's awesome that he sat down with was you Eric. and gave you feedback. Yeah, Eric. Eric, damn, Eric, you're a good guy. Blue seal. It's
1: interesting. So like first it was this, you know, random guy on, on LinkedIn. And then when I went to work pop. We had hired so much senior talent. You know, we hired talent from like Facebook and at the time like Tinder and like Tinder was like a hot L.A. startup. It still is, but hot L.A. startup. So we hired from Tinder, Snapchat, like all these people. And they were like journey people. They had been in the industry for 10 plus years already. They're kind of where I'm at now back then. And they were just really, you know, when you hire good culture fits, they realize that the company only gets better if every engineer on the team is as good as they are, you know, or like they, they're striving to be. But so all these really senior engineers say like, you know, they just kept me honest, kept me accountable, gave me tasks, taught me things. And then slowly, if you start doing the same thing over and over again, you get good at it and you get into the same situations all the time. So you start understanding patterns. And when they start coming to you for like, hey, what do you think this problem is? You're like, Oh, I think it could be this, 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 this. And you start becoming part of the conversation, right? And then the deeper you understand your own code base, the more people ask you like, hey, do you remember where that function is? And you're like, yeah, it's on line 37 in this file, in this folder. You know, like those are like these little things I did to be useful to the senior people, right? Um, And we have junior engineers at Gatsby today that are as useful, right? Like I just asked them a question. I'm like, cool. Now I can think of whatever else I need to think about now, you know? And so having mentors along the way, Was really good. And I also had a chip, right? So I'd always be complaining in one on ones with my managers. Having good managers helps too. If they care about you, they'll try to make your behavior better. You know, it's not just being Mm -hmm. good at engineering, soft skills are super important. I had terrible soft skills. I used to argue with people, like they thought I would be angry. I'm just passionate, right? But that, like in today's workplace, you can't be passionate about anything. You got to be very civil and very straightforward to not hurt people's feelings. I didn't care about that before. You know, I'd always get like in trouble, like literally like scolded, like, hey, don't do that, you know? And so people who are willing to work on your behavior, solid. After those that many years of constant mentorship, when I came to Gatsby, I was a different person. I never thought about what someone else was doing versus me. I was focused on the work, making decisions based on I've been in these situations before so I can confidently say I'm going to make this decision. And if I needed to call backup, I have like six or seven engineers I can say like hey remember when we did it that time and it worked out like the the proof right um so having that maturity and coming in obviously at a very senior role you have to be a lot more mature you have to help everyone else you know so it's completely different so i guess the grand scheme of it is mentorship along the way you know you got to find someone in your company that you want to be like and just be like them and then you find the next person be like them and then be like them and then one
0: day you'll be them probably I absolutely agree i think the, the mentorship aspect is really important and also was really important in my career. I learned a bunch from people that believed in me, right? And took a chance on me and gave me the feedback that I needed to hear. I also think your your point about soft skills is one that I think particularly junior engineers often underappreciate. You, you can be the best coder in the world, but you're going to be completely useless in a company if you can't work in a team. Because even if you're the best coder you're never going to be as good as 10 software engineers working together as one coherent team. And yes, coding is a part of it, but equally is conversations and making sure that the entire team is leveling up and working together as one unit moving in one direction. And it's really difficult, right? Like soft skills, they shouldn't be called soft skills. They should really be called the hard skills because they're, I think, the way more difficult thing to learn. The technical things, if you're passionate, you can learn those. But the soft skills, they're really, really difficult to learn. And getting good, at working in a team is super crucial for the success of not just your company, but also your your own career, right? But it's really, really, really difficult.
1: Yeah, there's a mindset shift. Like when you're a junior engineer, your goal is to produce output. And whatever output is what you measure, tickets closed, lines of code written, PRs opened, whatever, right? And the problem is you can't scale yourself. And that's what junior engineers are always just hustling, right? Pushing out code and stuff. But as you get more senior you realize that if i can teach three other people how to push code at a certain velocity i get three times the amount of work done and if your company is doing great things for the world or the product is amazing three times more time or uh, impact on your product just because you like took 30 minutes out of your day to show someone how to ssh into a container and delete some files or something you know <laughs> like something so trivial like that makes them a better engineer so they never have to ask you dumb questions that you think or you know whatever like whatever your your mode of operating is you can, you can multiply yourself by being a little bit more mature in your, in your engineering path, you know?
0: I think that's beautiful. To get back to the topic of this podcast a little bit, when did you first start interacting with GraphQL? Was that at WorkPOP already or did that happen at Gatsby?
1: It was at WorkPOP in 2015, very early into GraphQL. And at that point, it was the era of you have to convince people to use GraphQL. hmm So I lived through that, (laughs) Um, having to write big proposals on adding a GraphQL server to the the code base and really like negotiating like, oh, we're only going to do one resolver first, you know, and we'll see how it goes. And then the boss is like, okay, how are we going to track metrics on this? And then we're like, well, there's no instrumentation libraries for GraphQL yet. Okay, we have to instrument this ourselves. All right. Now we're like running Prometheus against a GraphQL server. Then the next people are like, okay, how are you going to make sure the like we have um, alerting and uptime on the GraphQL? It's like, okay, now we got to go do that. There was no, how are we going to cache this stuff? Still wasn't figured out, right? Until recently. But um, that's the era that I started in. And people just like were shaming GraphQL. It was like REST versus GraphQL and all that stuff.
0: Why at that time already were you like, at WorkPOP, we should use GraphQL? What was sort of the the problem you were trying to solve or why in 2015 where you're like we should bet on this super early technology where we have to build our own instrumentation alerting caching how did that come to be
1: so we made a very i don't want to okay i do not trying to be mean when i say this in 2014 we built workpop initial product with meteor js mm-hmm. and if those who don't know meteor js it had a essentially client it was a full stack framework where you could like essentially have like MongoDB on the client and the server and you had this special you weren't using REST, you were using WebSockets for everything. And so we were in this like world. And the problem with Meteor is if your site is very static, you don't need to have like live query subscriptions on every page. You know, it's not something that your app needs. You're not Uber, you know, you're just like let's say you're like indeed.com or Craigslist. Like why do you need live queries on a page that content never (laughs) changes, right? So it has a lot of performance implications when you're a startup and you're actually starting to scale and every query your app makes is a live query, Mm -hmm. right? So now your database is always at 100% CPU, et cetera. And then we could have gone to rest, but then we were like, why not? if we're already in this like bleeding edge world of Meteor, then our tolerance for more bleeding edge stuff is actually lower or higher. So we started investigating GraphQL and it just so happened at the time Meteor broke off Literally, while at the same time, Meteor broke off into Apollo, and so we, as Meteor customers, we like got first look into React Apollo, Apollo Client. I even like contributed a bunch to Apollo Client back in the day, um, just to prove to the engineering managers at my company that this will not shoot us in the foot. So that's kind of how we started. If Meteor never went into Apollo, who knows where where that be? Like I don't even know. Like the whole world would be different if you think about it.
0: Yeah, for sure, Apollo invested a lot into the graphical ecosystem early on. We got get like, like we talked with Peggy, right? Like Apollo's done a lot of stuff for the graphical community and really graphical wouldn't be where it is without them. I love that you were using Meteor and, and you struggled with your scaling because that's very reminiscent of the journey we went through it or I went through it at Spectrum with the team there because we weren't using Meteor, but we were also very real-time heavy, right? Spectrum was sort of like this attempt at building a, public chat platform. which should already tell you a lot about, first, the real-time implications of it, but also the scaling implications of it, right? And we ran into the exact same troubles with making every data requirement real-time is really expensive on your database and, and just entire infrastructure. We eventually also switched to GraphQL, and uh, we're much, much happier with it than we were with, we I think, we were using Firebase at the beginning. So totally, totally get that. So you're at WorkPop, you've convinced your managers and the rest of the team to work with a GraphQL API. How long did you end up seeing at WorkPop after that and, and what, what did that GraphQL API evolve to?
1: Yeah, so I stayed at WorkPOP from like maybe like I was the I was the seventh employee and I left when we got sold, right? So mm-hmm. the whole time. And GraphQL started off as a single GraphQL server that you know was talking to our monolithic database and we just shipped it as like a Node.js server that went alongside the Meteor app. And certain pages of the Meteor app would call into this GraphQL API and we'd start doing like incremental adoption and moving away from Meteor. And then more teams at at WorkPop wanted to wanted to use GraphQL. And we already had like we started building out like a service-oriented architecture. So Every service we have, and this is kind of how Gatsby works today, Gatsby Cloud that is, every service has its own database and it has its own GraphQL server. So what we would do is we'd have like essentially GraphQL services everywhere and services can communicate to each other through GraphQL and it was all fine and dandy. But for our essentially our front-end endpoint, we really wanted to kind of stitch together, and this is before schema stitching, but we wanted to stitch together all these services into a single API. So then I Back then, I worked with Jonas from Apollo and Sashko, and we like and M- Mikhail, Mikhail, who actually worked at Gatsby as well. Later <laughs> on, he was working on his own GraphQL product at the time. But we all got together and we we're talking about schema stitching, and that's kind of where like the schema stitching APIs came from, and and uh, GraphQL tools. And so we then adopted schema stitching. I had my own version of schema stitching, which would do essentially like you would introspect the schema anytime the service boots up and you'd have like a gateway that would be introspecting all schemas and putting them all together. And then now you have like a single API and that worked fine, except when one of your services went down, your gateway needs to know and re-introspect and then your whole service goes down. So we had all these like small problems with like just availability and reliability of the, the gateway. And then when we left, it became more of like how it is now. A Federation didn't exist, but I had written my own version of Federation at, at WorkPop. I used to do that a lot, just like write my own versions of things. I don't do that anymore. But we had our own kind of Apollo Federation type of thing where you'd have different graphs, you'd combine them to a single service. Um, I'd build time. It would introspect schemas at build time and generate different GraphQL APIs and, you know, all that type of good stuff. And yeah. And then I think the the industry kind of settled on schema stitching as not the best idea, right? Or use federation is pretty much what people say now. So I think I was on the right track is what I'm saying.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think from all of the particularly the bigger companies that we talk to at GraphCidian, I would say, practically speaking, all of them use Apollo Federation nowadays. It's really taken over, particularly at the enterprise scale, right? Like when you have many, many teams working on one GraphQL schema, you can't just have one GraphQL server. Like it just does not work. And I think Apollo very smartly really bet on that and focus on Federation on building a really solid solution without the problems of the homegrown, like, oh, I'm I'm introspecting the schema there and here when the service is down and everything else crashes, right? Like they've obviously spent a lot of time making a really solid solution there. But I love that you arrived at a very similar solution for that problem very early on. In a way, isn't that also kind of similar to what Gatsby does in its data layer? Like to finally get to the sort of last step in your journey at Gatsby. Gatsby has this data layer that I personally think is beautiful where you have all of these plugins and you can combine essentially many different data sources. It's not even just GraphQL APIs, but many different data sources into one GraphQL schema, which you can then fetch on your site in one unified manner. To me, from the outside, when I was at Gatsby, just for reference, I did not work on the data layer at all. I have zero context on how it works. So I'm asking very new questions here. From the outside, it feels like it's like a more advanced version of not even stitching or federation, but it's like a more advanced Version of putting together a graphical schema from many different data sources, since it's all so nested. How much of that already existed when when you joined Gatsby? And how much of that was influenced by the work you'd done at Workpop?
1: So. The beauty is we hired Mikhail, so like <laughs> someone with the amazing opinions about how GraphQL should be generated. And what we really do at Gatsby is schema composition. We actually use GraphQL Compose under the hood to kind of put these schemas together. So to take a step back, Gatsby is like is a static site generator, Jamstack application builder, whatever you want to call it. And it uniquely has this data layer, which is driven by what's called source plugins, which is just essentially like Node.js, little helper functions that the plugin system needs. So you can like source data, you can change data, et cetera. So if you have a data source, let's say it's your private API, you can implement a source plugin and it can fit right into Gatsby and be part of what we call the Gatsbyverse. And it'll automatically get added to the Gatsby data layer. What is the data layer? In a traditional GraphQL application, right? You have Schema, resolvers, and then the resolvers do something, right? They maybe hit a data loader or they hit the DB directly or some service, whatever. In Gatsby, it's very similar. During the build step, we source data, which we then essentially is making fetch calls to every data source, grabbing data, transforming it if that's what the source plugin author wants to do. And essentially, we've put all that data in our node store, which is Gatsby's way of saying the Gatsby database. So now, similar to A traditional GraphQL application, we have a database, right? Then we use Schema Composer, which is like from GraphQL Compose. And either the plugin dictates what the schema should be. The user can dictate how the schema should look as well. But we take all those schema combinations and all that, and we combine them into one GraphQL schema. So now you have a schema and now you have your data store. Then uh, Gatsby is really cool because we auto-generate resolvers now. So anytime you make a GraphQL query in Gatsby, it goes through this flow, same flow as any other GraphQL application, hits that node store
0: and back. That's amazing. If you've never used Gatsby's data layer, 10 out of 10 would recommend. It is a really beautiful way to get a bunch of data into your website from many, many different sources. It's really the part I love about Gatsby the most. Tell me a little bit about where Gatsby's going now. What's happened since then? You've you've built this static site generator. What happened next and where is it going to go after that?
1: Yeah, so since we're in like the Jamstack ecosystem, we kind of have to follow the trends as well. Last year's big trend was serverless functions, no doubt, right? And platforms like Netlify and Vercel, they already had that. One thing that Vercel is amazing and like functions are like that native experience in there and their platform makes it all easy, right? And just being honest, like, I was like I want to copy that. That's cool. That's like a good experience. As opposed to Netlify, Netlify on the other hand, you have your site and then you have like your functions and you have like, you know, you upload your functions differently than your site, or I guess you could do it in some plugin. I don't know, right? Like for me, if the framework just did it, that would be beautiful. So we built Gatsby functions, which is like native to Gatsby. You can write cloud functions we automatically deploy them. Um, if you're using Gatsby Cloud, if you're using Netlify, that works as well, whatever. All the other platforms probably support it as well. So that was the first thing. And that was like our kind of stance to say, hey, we're not just a static site generator anymore. We're trying to be somewhere in the middle. So you, like people have options. So form submissions now and fetching you know third-party data if you need to, or any of the number use cases are now unlocked for your static site. You could do authentication, Stripe checkout, whatever. So that gives you a lot of power. Then people asked us for SSR, right? And so we were like, okay, we can build SSR, but SSR isn't really like the Gatsby way of handling things. Like if you already have a data layer and you're using SSR, then this SSR is mainly for your third party APIs or data that's not sourced from Gatsby. It's for things that are the stock tickers and whatever other personalized content experiences you need to build. So we built SSR and now you can do, you know, third-party data fetching and then render your site. Cool. But we wanted to add the Gatsby way of how we think about SSR, which is called deferred static generation. Another three-letter acronym, DSG. <laughs> and what that allows us to do is essentially like build Gatsby pages on demand. So for example, you go through a build and you mark the page as deferred. The only time we actually run the is like build queries it needs, the HTML generation, et cetera, if someone requests it. And then upon first request, we go do the build for that page, and then we cache it. So n plus one requests always hit cash. That's been a big game changer for Gatsby, for big sites that have thousands and thousands of pages that no one ever looks at, yet they're spending huge amounts of time building them. And we call that the jam tax. There's a huge jam tax in the Jamstack ecosystem. So, you know, we just wanted to reduce the jam tax by doing that. So That's what's happened since. What's happening going forward is we're doubling down on that. We're trying to make the whole Gatsby platform as fast as possible, like fastest builds, no jam tax. All the same features, right? Not losing any features for for that, not trading reliability for scalability. So we're kind of doubling down there. And the data layer, we're doubling down there as well. So I think the data layer will look a lot different in the next year. It'll be a little bit more accessible, potentially, or ergonomic for maybe not just React to be any other place that we want to go.
0: That's incredible. I think the DSG was a huge step in particular because I know that when I was at Gatsby, a big focus was enabling big websites to be static because of all the benefits that it brings. Yeah, but when you have tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of pages, you have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of pages. You know what I mean? Like there's no arguing that. Like you just have that many pages. And when you have that many pages, builds are just going to take a while. Like you don't have an option. It is going to take a while. And so I think DSG was a beautiful solution to that. It, it essentially made The benefits of fully going SSR and, and rendering on every request with the benefits of static websites where it's like, it's super fast once it's built. And now you've got that you're in this beautiful world where your builds don't take forever, even if you have tens of thousands of pages. But then every page load, except for the first one, is essentially instant, since it's cached at the edge and it's just a static website after that. Right? And I think that that's beautiful.
1: Yeah, and like it doesn't take that long to load some pages. I really, It really depends on what you've got going on your website. That's been the biggest challenge working at Gatsby, or in probably in any framework, I'm sure, is you don't know what your users are doing with your framework. Mm-hmm. You can never tell. And... Every week there's always some random bug like some users having some problem and then you're like damn like why did they write their code like that <laughs> you know and it's because they didn't understand it's it's our fault you know really if they're doing the wrong things on our framework and then also having a terrible experience in Gatsby Cloud it's ultimately our our fault but it's like so surprising people like misuse or you know they don't read the docs and their all their builds fail or they take five hours because they're like loading up like all of TypeScript into a file. And we're like, you know, there's just so many different cases. It's weird.
0: Yeah, that also was something that stuck with me from Gatsby was that Gatsby does so much for people that they end up doing even more with it, right? And they end up doing so much with it that you're like, what are you doing here? Like this, this is not how we intended this to be used. And you have to be really careful to design abstractions really well so that people don't end up falling into foot guns. And I think actually... Gatsby's now strike a beautiful balance there
1: yeah we once had like a customer that had like 500,000 pages on their site and it would take like 10 hours to build and we timeout builds after an hour and a half so we had to like give them a special timeout window <laughs> and then they had a promise to us that they, don't, they would only build the site like three times a month and like with DSG and all the improvements we've made like they were able to defer most of those pages and actually can build it at a you know, higher frequency than what they want. So I think we're moving in the right direction.
0: So you mentioned that there's going to be some improvements to the data layer upcoming. Now, I know that you can't spoil any secrets, but how are you thinking about the future of GraphQL at Catsby? Yeah,
1: that's a great question. So there's two kind of concerns that we have. One is... For Gatsby to be very successful for beginners, we have to either demystify GraphQL all the time or hope that it becomes even more of a standard to like all engineers. A lot of people have problems learning GraphQL when they're learning Gatsby because they're doing it at the same time. And having not known anything in my past about engineering, it gets super confusing very quickly when you have to learn two concepts at once. And so that that's always some feedback we get from our customers and our new people in open source. It's like, is there a Gatsby that exists without GraphQL? So that's something we think about, you know, that could help. And it's totally doable. Once again, Apollo comes into the clutch where you can do like REST to GraphQL and GraphQL to REST or any number of libraries out there to expose that API to the customer. So That's one piece that needs to... Needs to change and get better. The second part is, if we are going to double down on GraphQL, then we need to have less foot guns all the time. And that's the problem with the plugin ecosystem is without the right like governance on how the plugin is built, what utility functions are shared with these plugins, right? You can't guarantee the same quality of every plugin then because no one's writing it the same way. Even internally at Gatsby, we, have, we own a bunch of source plugins. They don't all look the same, you know? <laughs> and that's confusing to the developers out in the ecosystem trying to make their own. It's confusing to us because we don't know how to debug it the same way. And when mysterious errors happen from some source plugins that we do not know, it's like the biggest Sherlock Holmes case to figure out what the bug is. You know, it's not like we don't have like the intuition built up because nothing's the same, right? And so that's the second part. If we're going to double down on GraphQL, then this whole ecosystem of Gatsby, the Gatsbyverse, we got to start doing some things opinionated, like this is what you do. This is the best way to source data. This is the best way to render a page, kind of like the angular way of doing things where you just tell people what to do. And you say, okay, that's the way it is, you know? (laughs) Um, So that's some things that we're thinking about. But then for GraphQL in particular, we're thinking about graphical subscriptions. How that can like ease the ease some of our our pains uh, when we're generating pages really quickly. You know, we have like the whole composer model, and you know, we want to like standardize how types get generated. And then, like obviously for the DX experience, you know, having type gen autocomplete, like the things that people love that Prisma made famous, essentially, just awesome TypeScript autocomplete. You know. For me, I always want to optimize for people not
0: talking to me. And doing these
1: (laughs) things means people figure out their issues on their own, you know?
0: (laughs) I love that. I optimize for people not talking to me. I love it. I think that's beautiful. I think a lot of what you just mentioned, Gatsby's biggest strength is for sure it's community, but equally it's also its biggest weakness because you have so much, so many plugins that are all built in so many different ways that do so many different things that it's just really can be really difficult to debug what is going wrong with your website. And I think that's a strength because none of these plugins will exist without the community, right? And the community is freaking awesome. But equally, it's also a big weakness because it's like, I don't know where things are happening. There's so many layers here. I'm glad that you're thinking about this and I love hearing all of that.
1: Well, I think we're thinking about the right things. You know, the more we invest in the data layer, the plugin ecosystem, the more Gatsby can do, you know, like just like we can be more flexible as a tool because you, like you said, Gatsby does a lot of things, but Gatsby doesn't have to do all those things at once is what I'm getting at. Maybe there's a world where it doesn't.
0: I think that that's beautiful.
1: And that's as cryptic as I can be
0: about it. <laughs> <laughs> Rightfully so, right? Like you can't spill any of these secrets, but I'm, I appreciate you opening up this much to our listeners. Is there anything else that you want to mention? Anything else we should talk about that I forgot to ask?
1: No, I think we covered a lot. Got really deep this episode. So I really appreciate the time and you know the great questions, by the way.
0: Thanks for chatting with me, Abi, And I look forward to chatting with you again. Listeners, if you wanna go follow Abi Abi Ayer on Twitter, it's also gonna be linked in the show notes, of course. And if you want to check out Gatsby, gatsbyjs.com. So is there anything else you want to plug, Abi, while while people are still listening? Uh,
1: no, just thanks everyone. Check out Gatsby, check out GraphCDN,
0: and we'll see you on the next episode. Fantastic. Alright, everybody. See you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.